Chapter 29 Why Incision Chaz and Luke touched down at 2 a.m. and made it to the D.C. Ag facility by 2.30 a.m. Luke was still lucid but fading fast. The armed guards in the garage all wore hazmat suits. Rubber gloves jammed tightly inside their trigger guards of their HK MP5 compact machine guns. Jack met them on the fourth floor. He was suited up and wheeled his brother into the makeshift quarantine area. The nondescript building that housed the covert headquarters of the Department of Agriculture was designed for every conceivable situation, which Jack fully appreciated now. The main work floor where he, Ammon, and Quan had spent most of their time was only the tip of the iceberg. There was a fully functional lab, infirmary, surgical facility, as well as detention area where Glenn Halvers was currently enjoying his stay. They put Luke and Chastity in separate rooms, floor-to-ceiling glass separating them. A curtain could be drawn if privacy was needed. Jack never had an official M.D. as part of his lengthy credentials. Though he knew more than most doctors or specialists, he had no interest in doing a residency program for a title that didn't mean much to him. After spending close to a year of his life in a hospital, even if it was due to a coma, the idea of working in one never interested him. He connected Luke to a vast array of monitoring equipment inserted an IV, and set about taking several vials of blood. It was standing room only outside the room. Everyone crowded around the enclosed glass cubicle to watch Jack work. There was a precision with which he drew blood, calibrated monitoring devices, and spoke with his brother simultaneously. It's all good. Jack spoke to Luke using his voice versus their telepathic connection. That's bullshit. Luke said, smiling weakly. We've got everything set up to test the plant material as well as to see what you actually have, Jack reassured him. Luke nodded, remaining quiet while Jack finished up. As soon as he was about to leave, Luke grabbed his arm. Whatever happens, man, I do not want to end up like that poor bastard in the field. Jack averted Luke's gaze, but Luke yanked his arm again. Promise me, goddammit, Luke said. Jack took off his suit and scrubbed down in the adjacent room, then found Rhodes to ask when the other body would be there. The cleanup team had taken possession of the body and hustled it to the airport, leaving a devastating fire in their wake, destroying the agrifuse plot as well as nearby fields. Rhodes was a firm believer in better safe than sorry. ETA is 60 minutes, Rhodes said. As soon as it's here, I'll have him put in the morgue. Jack nodded, amazed that they had a morgue. This place is like an aircraft carrier, he thought, as he rushed to the lab. Eamon and Quan were suited up and ready in the lab. The kid with the horn-rimmed glasses was there as well. Apparently, they'd made a new friend. Jack mentally went through the process in his head, simulating workflows and trying to anticipate any bottlenecks in the process. He knew Luke's life was in the balance, and time would be the ultimate killer. 1. Spectrometer? Check. Chemometric database loaded? Check. 
Custom reagents, check. DNA sequencer online, check. There was nothing else. He was ready to go. He let Quan and Eamon begin testing Luke's blood and plant material while he waited for the body to be delivered. According to Jack's mental clock, they were due any moment. He went to the morgue, suited up again, and got ready to perform the post-mortem. Jack almost threw up in his mask when he unzipped the body bag and saw the body. It was a mess. He removed the body from the bag, the horrible smell finding a way into his suit. The subject was of medium height, Caucasian, long tangled hair, and poorly dressed. He took a look at his teeth as well as hands and feet, concluding the man was most likely homeless and possibly drug addicted. His chest cavity had a hole punched in it, most likely from where Luke fell on him. Based on the shape of the man's limbs, his torso was in a much greater state of decomposition. Odd, he thought to himself, and made a mental note. He made a Y incision to get a better look at the internal organs. At first glance, he understood why Luke would have thought the organs were liquefied. Upon further inspection, he saw the pancreas and liver weren't liquefied, but rather laden with pus, either rupturing on their own or with Luke's help as he landed on him. He took samples from every organ, noting the others were largely intact with no visible signs of necrosis. He tagged the samples, removed his gear, and went back to check on Quan and Eamon. They were in the thick of it working on an assembly line, Quan doing the sample prep, and Ama performing the initial test with a spectrometer. They were fine on their own for now, Jack thought. With him in there, it would be one too many cooks in the kitchen. He went to check on Luke, looking at the clock in the hallway, noticing it was already 10.30 in the morning. Serena and Beth ate breakfast at a greasy spoon in the old section of Vegas. There were no cameras nor the tight security that they would find a mile or two in and near the major hotels and casinos. It was a place for locals, which suited her just fine. Beth opted for an omelet, and Serena chose yogurt and fruit, careful not to spill anything on her black running suit. You ever wear anything else? Beth asked, referring to Serena's running attire. Why would I? I dress for comfort, plus I look good in this, Serena said. Beth nodded appreciatively. Well, okay then. So you're still going through with this, Serena asked, changing the subject. Absolutely, Beth said. You mind filling in a few details, Serena prodded? There's really not much to fill you in on. We're going to drive to Jack's house. I'm going to use my key to get in. Then we're going to search it. What else do you need to know? Beth said, getting aggravated. Well, what if the key doesn't work? Or the alarm codes have changed? Or Jack's there? Serena asked. Beth took another bite of omelet, chewed it slowly, and stared blankly at Serena without speaking. Serena shrugged. Never mind. I give up. Beth felt a rush of conflicting feelings pour over her as she entered the long driveway to Jack and Luke's house. What she hadn't mentioned to Serena 
was that the house had been under constant surveillance by the organization since the Greenleaf debacle, so she was sure he wasn't there. There hadn't been a locksmith there either, so most likely they'd be able to gain access easily. As far as an alarm, she'd have to figure that out. Hopefully, Jack wouldn't have changed the codes. However, she'd underestimated him before. Beth pulled their car in the front of the house and got out like they owned the place. If a neighbor happened to see them, she wouldn't look suspicious. She'd been there enough that she was damn near a regular fixture. The door opened easily enough as they walked through the large marble entrance and found their way to the alarm pad on the vestibule wall. They were lucky. The green light glowed steadily. The alarm hadn't been set. So, where do we start? Serena asked, walking into the large living room, marveling at the expanse of it all. Probably not in here. I can't remember a time when we were in this room at all, Beth said. What a waste. This place is unbelievable, Serena said, taking it all in. For a moment, Beth felt a momentary stab of pride, recalling her relationship with Jack. She shook it off. Yeah, not bad, she muttered. Serena started in the kitchen, Beth in the bedroom. They weren't overly conscious of being inconspicuous. However, they didn't see how trashing the place, slinging drawers on the floor and throwing sofa cushions around, would actually help. Knowing Jack, it wouldn't be obvious, but wouldn't be too clever either. He was a creature of habit, so anything he was hiding would be accessible and in an area he frequented. They went through the house room by room, methodically searching every conceivable area. Drawers, clothing, toiletries, you name it. It was a large house, around 8,500 square feet, not including the gym and garage. Four hours later, they met back in the living room and sunk down on the sofa, both tired and annoyed. Nothing? Serena asked. Beth shook her head, no. What makes you think he actually has something? Some algorithm or method in the first place? Serena asked. You said it yourself, he was an open book. Maybe he wasn't lying to you. No, Beth said. What I said was he appeared to be an open book. However, I didn't really know him. Big difference. So now what, Serena asked. Jim and garage, then we're out of here, Beth said. They walked downstairs to the garage, which was an underground affair housing at least 20 automobiles, new exotics to classics, and as many motorcycles. Holy shit. I didn't get the sense he was that big of a car buff, Serena said. Beth cut her eyes at her. I mean, when I met him that one time, Serena quickly added, unsure of why she actually clarified her statement. You don't know him, Beth said curtly. There was a locker room in the basement near the gym. The gym was nothing really more than a full-size basketball court with a few weights, benches, and cardio equipment wedged into the corners. She secured the locker room. There were 12 lockers ostensibly for guests, a hot tub, steam room, shower and sink area that would stack up well against any posh spa. Serena searched each area thoroughly and found nothing that stood out. 
There were two club chairs in the center of it all facing a television. She quickly flicked the remote she found on the ottoman. The TV was tuned to the NFL channel, of course. She made her way out of the locker room into the garage to look for Beth. The garage was well decorated, better than most people's houses. The floor was certainly cleaner. There were no oil spots anywhere. The cars were parked with care with plenty of space between so no car door would hit anything but air. The garage was well lit with old gas station neon signs glowing brightly, creating a state fair-like atmosphere. Serena wasn't a car girl, but she could imagine herself wanting to spend more time in the garage and locker room too if she lived there. Beth had gone through the cars in addition to the comprehensive set of tools on the back wall, but came up empty. Nothing in the locker room, she asked Serena. Serena just shook her head no. Beth walked past her and kicked open the door to the locker room, poured herself a glass of water from the cooler and sat down in the club chair. She looked up at the football game playing on the TV. So you searched in here, right? You just didn't hang out and watch the game, she asked Serena. Serena just gave Beth a fuck you look. I just clicked it to see what they watched. Beth took the remote and started flipping channels, all of which were football games. That's weird, Beth said. Jack never watched football. Maybe it's for Luke, Serena said. The guy has a gambling habit that could feed the poor. He's probably betting on all the games. No, Beth said slowly, considering the idea. Luke never bet on ball games, horses, or dogs. He was a card player. She picked up the remote and considered it for a moment. She looked at the soft, numbered rubber buttons, noticing that out of all of them, six were heavily discolored and the rest practically untouched. Beth sat lost in her thoughts for a few moments, the six numbers rolling around in her head, checking them against her database of numbers Jack may have used. She couldn't think of any combination of numbers that would have meant anything to Jack until it hit her square in the face. Something so obvious, it hadn't occurred to her. She pressed the buttons corresponding to the two-digit day, month, and year of her birthday and heard a soft click. The wall behind the TV moved slightly. Chaz flicked through the channels of the television in her makeshift hospital room, trying to find something to distract her from her situation. She felt fine and did the math in her head. If she had whatever Luke had contracted, then within the next couple of hours, she'd most likely start to feel it if the illness manifested itself as quickly in her as it did in Luke. Her nails danced across the remote control buttons too quickly to get a sense of what was really on. She was nervous and terrified that whatever happened to the man in the field would also happen to Luke. She was a spy, used to using whatever means necessary to accomplish the task at hand. However, she knew from the moment she met Luke he was more than just a job. Chastity was smart, athletic, and had graduated from Stanford with a 3.8 GPA on a volleyball scholarship. Never the tallest at only 5'8", she easily was the most competitive, willing her team to victory and tossing her body around to make incredible digs and saves. 
She saw that same competitive nature in Luke as well. She was hard to ignore and drew the attention of quite a few men. However, she wanted more than just a MRS degree and a job. When the CIA came calling, she answered with vigor. Her first assignment had been in Europe, undercover, working to break up the most perverse human trafficking ring that had ever been spawned. She dedicated her life for two years to infiltrate that particular organization, doing unspeakable acts to gain the trust of men she would have rather killed than look at. In the end, she was successful and finally had enough evidence to put the ringleaders and their minions away for a long time, if not life. It was then that her life's work crumbled and she saw the true nature of clandestine services. Instead of crushing a human trafficking ring responsible for the kidnapping and sexual slavery of thousands of young girls from the poorest areas of Europe, her superiors used her evidence to flip the principles. All she had accomplished was helping to create a vast network of snitches to deliver sordid reports, providing the CIA with leverage of her diplomats and key European political and business figures. The human suffering continued. Nothing had changed. It was shortly after having a slight disagreement with her superior, ending with her putting a gun in his mouth, she parted ways with the CIA, completely cut adrift and blackballed by all of the other intelligence services. It was in that darkest hour when Colonel Rhodes appeared in her life with a crazy offer to work in a clandestine service hidden within the Department of Agriculture. Rhodes outlined as much as he knew about the organization, a corporate mafia of sorts, with tentacles in every conceivable criminal activity known across the world, including large and notorious prostitution rings in Europe. Upon hearing that, she was in, looking for any way to make a difference. To anyone in government, she was officially out of the clandestine services, opting for a quieter life within the lowly Department of Agriculture as a policy analyst and a desk jockey. However, her real day job was much more, as a field operative chasing down the most corrosive cancer that existed in the government and corporate America, known only as the organization. Her first big break working for AG had come when she was assigned to get close to Luke Glasser. Finding out that he was clean, or at least not part of the organization, was a relief. After the Greenleaf debacle, she had pushed him out of her mind for months. However, seeing him again brought up feelings she had never had before. Now, he was dying in the other room, and no channel on TV could take her mind off of him. Jack couldn't take his mind off of his brother either, for that matter. Eamon and Quan had been working nonstop over the past hours in an attempt to identify the viral strain infecting Luke. They analyzed his blood, plant material, and tissue samples from the corpse. With all three, they felt as if they had enough information to identify whatever it was Gomes had mutated and hopefully buy enough time to use his CRISPR tool at least a way to yank bits and pieces of the virus or viruses from cells to ultimately modify genes themselves to trigger an immune response. The biggest hurdle was time. From the time Luke was wheeled in, 
his condition had worsened quickly. Jack had as much confidence in himself and his colleagues as anyone could possibly have. But what they were attempting to do in hours or days was what normally took others years to accomplish. He may have been the equivalent of a walking library of Congress, but deep down, he doubted it would be enough. He checked on Luke continually, administering every known form of treatment possible that could cover a broad spectrum of infections. He continually checked Luke's abdomen to see if there was inflammation within his liver. Unfortunately, he could tell there was. If they didn't figure out something quickly, Luke's liver and pancreas would rupture, just like the man's they had found in the field. 